Good evening. I was thinking that we've, we've covered a lot of territory in these few days. We've explored the functions of metta as a concentration practice, as a cultivation practice, as purification. Um, we've explored metta as a pathway to liberation, as a way of accessing um, liberating insights into the, the nature of conditioned reality and um, liberation of the heart from things like hatred and ill will and fear. And so I was thinking that tonight I wanted to expand the field a bit and talk a little about the way that metta can be a pathway towards a more collective kind of liberation. And then I got a massive headache. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Bibiana said it was uh, maybe because of the um, pressure change. <laughs> that happens, huh? But before we talked about that, I was thinking like, um, I, I was, I was reflecting on the process of thinking about the talk and being beset by this massive headache and remembering the Buddhist teaching about the four imponderables. You guys heard of this? The Buddha said there's four things that, if you think about them too much, lead to, and I quote, madness and vexation. <laughs> and those things are as follows. Uh, the range of powers of a Buddha... Right? It's like, don't even try. <laughs> you don't, you, if you think about it too much, it, it will even, you know, not be good. Um, the range of powers involved with jhana absorption. So these deeper states of concentration. He's like, you can't think about that too much. <laughs> um, any conjectures about the arising of the cosmos? <laughs> Like, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. And the fourth, he said, is the um, precise workings of the laws of karma. <laughs> Dang. Ooh. <laughs> Oh my god, we're such nerds. <laughs> so I before Bibiana said like, oh maybe the pressure, I was like, oh, I was trying to trying to work out the precise workings of the laws of karma, you know, like how exactly it is our actions can lead to the kind of result that we want. Um, how exactly it is that love can create the kind of change that we need to see in our world. And the truth is that, you know, there are, the Buddha talked about several different kinds of laws that govern our universe. Karma is one of them, and that has to do with the, it's basically the law of cause and effect, the, the impacts of our 
um, thoughts and actions and the way they plant seeds to manifest in the world later on. So we don't know exactly the way that it works. We don't know exactly when those seeds will sprout, but we do know that when we plant a seed, it sprouts eventually. So the precise workings of that are not ones that like any of us can really know, but we know that cause and effect happens. And so, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the seeds that we're planting here and the seeds that we plant in our communities and in our work together in the world and the possibilities for how those might sprout. Um, and it occurred to me that the Buddha did explain um, himself and then many you know, monks in the commentaries have made these detailed mind maps of how liberation happens in the individual mind and heart. Okay. And there's also this really like vigorous, you know, moral imperative that I think he um, gives to us around the necessity to um, work towards the liberation of all beings. But that part, we don't exactly get precise instructions around. (laughs) And that, I think, is our work. That's our creative work. That's our um, spiritual work is to articulate for ourselves and for each other, like, how does that actually happen? How does liberation start to happen at a collective level? Um, Is it that the ways that it happens for individual is just, like, scalable? Like, that the ways that you all have been infusing your hearts and minds with love and um, allowing whatever is not love to arise and forming a new relationship with it so that it kind of settles in a different place or can can be liberated and dissolved like is that what happens at the collective level i don't know (laughs) you know this is a um a big i don't know And I think when it comes to how it is that love sets us free as a society, there's so much that we don't know. And um, as we were discussing in one of the groups earlier today, in this particular lineage of practice, not knowing is actually not a problem. It's a really high value state. And my experience is that without a good amount of metta, not knowing feels very scary. It's very anxiety producing. It's like, mm, I don't know, how do I do it? I don't know. And then with metta in the field, not knowing is a completely different experience. It's, as one of my teachers says, the ground of creativity. Right? Then we don't know we get to discover. 
when we don't know, we get to be in a state of wonder. When we don't know, we seek to get closer and it creates a sense of intimacy with other beings and with life. So, I don't know, and it's, I don't think it's a terribly bad thing, but one of the things that is suggested often um, when there's a lot of not knowing and it does feel challenging or destabilizing is to go to what we do know. Right? So there's a lot, it's unknown, but it's like, okay, what, what can we know? What can we put our finger on? What can we like put our stake in? What can we be sure of? And um, the beings that I respect the most in the fields of um, societal transformation all say that love is a part of it. That that's one thing we can count on. Um, Bell Hooks, our great loving ancestor, Bell Hooks, wrote in Outlaw Culture, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is a testimony of love as the practice of freedom. That's the title of the essay, Love as a Practice of Freedom. And loving is something we do know how to do in a moment-to-moment -moment way. And it's something that um, many of our ancestors have done, you know, for generations and what allowed them to survive horrendous conditions. Um, I always think of this passage from the book uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Um, I didn't write this one out on paper. <laughs> um, but it's a passage where, you know, Beloved is um, written, uh, at least this part of it is written um, during uh, the time of um, enslavement um, of Africans in the United States, which was so brutal, so unspeakably brutal. And um, in this scene, there is a self-ordained preacher, her name is Baby Suggs, and it's the one day of the week where the enslaved people get to um, have some time to not rest, but they, they basically get to go to church. And this is the church that she runs. And um, I'll read this scene. I think it speaks to love and freedom. It says, when the warm weather came, Baby Suggs, holy, followed by every black man, woman, and child who could make it through, took her great heart to the clearing. A wide open place cut deep in the woods, nobody knew for what, at the end of a path known only to the deer and whoever cleared the land in the first place. In the heat of every Saturday afternoon, she sat in the clearing while the people waited among the trees. After situating herself on a huge flat-sided rock, Baby Suggs bowed her head and prayed silently. The company watched her from the trees. They knew she was ready when she put her stick down. 
Then she shouted, let the children come, and they ran from the trees toward her. Let your mothers hear you laugh, she told them, and the woods rang. The adults looked on and could not help smiling. Then, let the grown men come, she shouted. They stepped out one by one from among the ringing trees. Let your wives and children see you dance, she told them. And the ground life shuddered under their feet. Finally, she called the women to her. Cry, she told them. For the living and the dead, just cry. And without covering their eyes, the women let loose. It started that way, laughing children, dancing men, crying women, and then it got mixed up. Women stopped crying and danced. Men sat down and cried. Children danced, women laughed, children cried until exhausted and riven, all and each lay about the clearing, damp and gasping for breath. In the silence that followed, baby Suggs, holy, offered up to them her great big heart. She did not tell them to clean up their lives and sin no more. She did not tell them they were the blessed of the earth, its inheriting meek or its glory bound pure. She told them that the only grace they could have was the grace they could imagine. That if they could not see it, they would not have it. Here, she said, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in the grass. Love it, love it hard. And I kept thinking about that line, the only grace they could have was the grace they could imagine that if they could not see it, they would not have it. And I think that's really a message for all of us. And I think there's a connection between love and the capacity to imagine. That when the heart is liberated from hatred and ill will and fear, there's so much energy freed up. Gosh. And so it's like, okay, we are liberated from, you know, greed, hatred, delusion. And what are we liberated to? We're liberated to dream. We're liberated to imagine possibilities and step into the futures that we imagine for ourselves and each other. And that's a really worthy endeavor. Um, I learned a lot of what I know about um, imagination and future possibility from uh, like a tradition of uh, black feminist writers, especially science fiction writers. And there's this project that some of you may know about called, um, it's written, it was a while ago actually now, called Octavia's Brood. And it was this um, project by um, social justice activists, Adrian Marie Brown and Walida Imarisha. And basically they did a series of workshops where they asked a bunch of um, activists, mainly in Detroit, um, to write works of science fiction. 
with the premise that whenever a um, a gain is made towards civil rights or towards um, protecting the planet, you know, it's always something that people don't think is possible. It seems like science fiction. Mm-hmm. And then it's not science fiction anymore because they make it happen. Right? So this is what um, they said about the project. Wally and Marisha writes, our ancestors dreamed us up and then bent reality to create us. For Adrian, who's her co-editor, and myself, as two black women, we think our ancestors in cha- we think of our ancestors in chains, dreaming about a day when their children's children's children would be free. And then Adrian says, Walida and I say it's our right and responsibility to write ourselves into the future and to write ourselves into futures we want to be a part of. We have to get into the game of imagination. She's talking to all of us now. We have to shift how we think of ourselves, how others think of us, how we think of conflict mediation and resolution, how we think of guns, how we think of safety. We have to imagine new contexts for all of these things if we hope to have a future in which we survive with one another. So I love that. Um, that sense of love making space um, for the freedom to imagine a new world and the energy to actually um, work towards making that world possible. I was thinking too of um, You know, I, I had like a little lasting sting in my heart um, the first night we were here and we did the land acknowledgement and asked if anybody is here who had heritage from the Omami, Winnie, Winniewag um, people, the Algonquin people, and, and there was silence. And... Um, It's just an ongoing heartbreak, you know, and a real conundrum for those of us who didn't, um, you know, ancestors made choices we wouldn't agree with or ancestors didn't choose to come here. And it's something we're all reckoning with. And it's something we need a lot of imagination and a lot of creativity to, to, to um, live our way into. I was remembering um, reading as a part of my homework for this training I'm doing uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And she talks about um, indigeneity as being, to be indigenous as to be people of a place. Right? And that one of, you know, <laughs> in Buddhism, we talk about the, um, sense of separation as being one of the core wounds. And I think Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the, the original wound of separation from the earth, separation from our land, you know, which so many of us experience. Maybe everybody in this world, in this room. 
but she gives us, um, she gives me hope in um, a possibility of becoming naturalized to a place. And this is what she says about that. She says, being naturalized to a place means to live as if this is the land that feeds you, as if there are streams from which you drink that build your body and fill your spirit. To become naturalized is to know that your ancestors lie in this ground. Here you will give your gifts and meet your responsibilities. To become naturalized is to live as if our children's future matters. To take care of the land as if our lives and the lives of all our relatives depend on it because they do. Right? And that's still possible for us. It's still available. And so, yeah, the practice of metta is both about what it allows for us to dream into and create in the future, and also about how we do what we do. Yeah. And the quality of care we bring to how we show up when we're showing up for each other as individuals or as communities. And... Um, I feel like personally, I learned that in a big way. I, I wrote a book about friendship and the Buddhist teachings on spiritual friendship and how they might support us in um, waking up to our interdependence and living into it more fully. And um, I had a hell of a time writing that book. I mean, talk about purification. I was like writing a book on friendship and I was like, do I have any friends? <laughs> Does anyone even like me? <laughs> you know? And um, yeah, I think it's, you know, what we've all been experiencing this week, you know, the ways that we add in love. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's gentle and it's powerful. Um, and it can shake up things like, fear and doubt. And, um, and for me in writing that book, it felt like the fear and doubt were just like, um, it was like the mind was filled with peanut butter. And it was like so hard to push the thoughts out through that like thick, you know, um, you know, thick space of um, uncertainty and fear and doubt about whether, you know, whether friendship, like, really mattered, whether really, it really could be a force for change. And... Um, One of the things that I learned and what finally enabled me to finish the book was that um, 
if I was going to write it, I had to um, find a way to connect with um, the confidence that um, spiritual friendship actually is something that could be life-affirming and life-saving. And I had to look at my own um, relationships and find the evidence for that. I had to look outside and be inspired by the examples I saw all around me. Um, And I had to like write for an audience, not my imagined, like it wasn't just like an inner critic. It was like a committee. <laughs> it was like a, you know, it was like the, you know, scholarly engaged Buddhists who'd be like, this is an incorrect translation and this doesn't match with, you know, and I just had to like not write for them, not write defensively, but write for um, the people who I knew were like, um, already with me and just needed some encouragement and some reminders too. Um, and I say that because you know one of the things um, one of my teachers, I um, Arawana Hayashi taught me about um, making art and making Dharma art is that you spend. Um, she said, like, 90% of your time cultivating the mind state of openness and possibility and love. And then you spent 10% of the time actually doing the thing. Right? But when you do the thing, it comes out fast. <laughs> because there's no peanut butter. <laughs> there's nothing in the way between you and that, like, divine expression. Right? Um, and let me tell you, it feels so much better. It feels so amazing, you know, to write unburdened by that level of like doubt and insecurity and, and fear, to spend the time that it takes to connect with the confidence first. Um, so I think, I think this is the last thing I'll read. Um, it's kind of about that, um, about not just what we're doing, but how we're doing it when we're talking about the work of societal transformation. This is a piece that comes um, from a, an artist named Aisha Schillingford. Um, calls, calls herself an anti-disciplinary artist. <laughs> There's a lot of like public artwork. Aisha says, there are two sayings from the Quran and Islam that have taught me how to think of nature as an influence. The first is, if you only relied on Allah as a true reliance, he would provide sustenance for you just as he does the birds. They fly out in the morning with their stomachs empty and return in the afternoon with full stomachs. They write, this influences my organizing by reminding me that we are not the absolute progenitors of our outcomes. 
we put in the work, we fly out and we have an intention. Get food and racism, change society, get free. And we work hard. We look for worms and build our nests and we fly out in formation, etc. But at the end of the day, we have to believe firmly that there are forces of justice and truth and love at play. We do our part and rely on the greater power of the universe, AKA our collective intentions and efforts. It's relieving to know it's not always up to us as individuals, but there is a complex interconnection of power at play. So two things there, you know, the, the planting seeds, the doing our part, you know, and also the recognition that we're a part of a great team of people who are also doing their part. Like we don't have to get out there with our cape and do it all alone. <laughs> Can't. Right. Just like the imponderable workings of karma, you know, there are so many causes and so many effects coming into play. Um, We just make sure what we're putting in is good. And next um, is the saying, a Muslim is like a date palm tree whose leaves do not fall, always beneficial and never harmful. She says, this influences my organizing by reminding me that my core responsibility is to be a benefit to whatever I'm engaged in. I may not always know how that will happen, but it has to be my aim. I want people's lives to have been better, even in tiny ways from having participated with me in this work. This means to me that I bring beautiful words, actions, ideas, and behaviors into space. And at the end of it all, even if we don't see the fruits of our labor, shouldn't we be able to say we loved and enjoyed each other? That's why I want to act and be like a palm tree, providing shade, covering my comrades. I want to provide food. I want to be what they can lean on. I want to be a resource sustaining our work. When I read those words, I think like, wow, this is a person who really has um, stepped into their role in the revolution, you know? She's like, my role in the revolution is I'm an artist. I bring beautiful words, actions, ideas, and behaviors into space. So clear. I don't know about you, but I'm not always so clear what my role in revolution is. <laughs> I know. But I know that we all have a role. I know those roles sometimes change and that the revolution needs lots of different roles. You know? We need the people who will block harm from happening, whether through their work or like literally putting their bodies in the way. We need people who will build new systems, new ways of being together in community, new schools, new healthcare systems, 
new ways to house people. We need people who can support transformation and consciousness and to share the perspectives that will influence how and what we build. We need the people who will be willing to go to jail and the people who will watch their kids. We need the people who will go to the march and the people who will make a big pot of soup for after. We need the people, you know, we need, we need all of us. And um, I trust that each of us will love our way into the answer of what our right role in the revolution is. Staying with the question, like, what do I love? What I want to protect? What are my resources? What are my skills? And with these big questions and these big decisions, um, it is so hard to think our way into the answer. You know, you give yourself a headache. (laughs) (laughs) But the way that we, you know, learn in the Dharma is like, Mindfulness is this data collector, and it keeps collecting data about, oh, this lights my heart up. I do this well. I have this resource. I have this leverage point for power. I can make this connection. Um, and we keep paying attention with love, and at some point, the faculty of wisdom just comes in and connects the dots, right? and we see. That's what insight is. It's not Kate going in there and like figuring it out. (laughs) It's Kate collecting the information, leaning back and letting wisdom complete the picture and being open to receiving with eyes of love what it is I see. So all this to say is keep practicing. You know, you guys are doing really amazing. Keep going. And, um, (laughs) one one last thing I want to say there are many roles in the revolution worrying is not one of them And when we worry, it really feels like we're doing something, right? Because it makes us so tired. But it is not doing anything. And um, I, um, I can be a worrier. And um, this past New Year's, um, well, this past holiday season, I'll say, like, there was a lot for me to worry about, you know, in my personal life and then like in the world always. Um, And I, on New Year's Eve, um, did a little ritual, set some intentions, went to bed early. And when I woke up in the morning, I had a little bit of a a message and, the message was this. It was, um, 
turn your worries into prayers. And somebody mentioned prayer today in one of our group meetings and how close metta is to prayer. And so this felt relevant. Um, And it's been a real guiding force for me this year to realize like every time I'm, you know, worried about, is my kid going to be okay? May my child grow and flourish, you know? I'm worried about this scary election season, you know? May we all wake up to the truth of who we really are and what we really want. So that's the way that we can use metta to um, shift things to, just on that internal place. If there's something you've been worrying about, about how we all work this out, or how we finally get it together, clean up this mess that we're in, you know. Notice it's a worry. See if you can turn it into a prayer. So maybe we can practice that for a few minutes together. Settling into your body. Feeling into your breath. Connecting into your beautiful heart. 
And on this precious last evening together, invitation to really fully open to any longings in your heart for freedom for love for you for this world And find the words inside to make it a wish, make it a prayer. And know that that wish, that prayer is a seed. And it cannot help but sprout. That's just what seeds do.